Please be seated. John Steinbeck wrote a famous novel in which the main character, Kino, a diver, discovers the pearl of the world. And when he brings it back to his village of fellow impoverished people, the town gathers around him to hear his prophecy of what the money from this pearl will secure him for himself and his family. And it isn't long before the people who had ignored him when he was poor show up when they think he is rich. And one of those people is the priest. Never would he darken the door of Kino's home under normal circumstances, but now that Kino has come into this vast wealth, he wants to make sure that he gives an appropriate amount of money to the Roman Catholic Church. And so, as he approaches his hut, the people say this, the father is coming, the priest is coming. The men uncover their heads and step back from the door, and the women gather their shawls about their faces and cast down their eyes. Kino and Juan Tomas, his brother, stood up. The priest came in, a graying, aging man with an old skin and a young, sharp eye. Children, he considered these people, and he treated them like children. Kino, he said softly, thou art named after a great man and a great father of the church. He made it sound like a benediction. Thy namesake tamed the desert and sweetened the minds of the people. Didst thou know that? It is in the books. Kino looked quickly down at his son's head and he, as he hung on his wife's hip. Someday, his mind said, that boy would know what things were in the books and what things were not. The music had gone out of Kino's head, but now thinly, slowly, the melody of the morning, the music of evil, of the enemy, sounded. There's one thing that evil and scrupulous leaders in the church have done for generations. It is to withhold from the people the knowledge of God's word under the guise that they are not capable of understanding it nor trustworthy enough to have it. Some of the darkest chapters in church history come from the days when men were willing to lay down their lives and spill their blood or be burned at the stake for a crime that was nothing more than providing the Bible in the language of the people. It's the story of William Tyndale. It's the story of many others who lost their lives during the Reformation because either the Roman Catholic Church or Bloody Mary under its control would seek out and to destroy them for the audacity of allowing the people to have the Word of God. And yet, ironically, that is precisely what God has called elders and shepherds to do. Not only to give the people the Word of God, but only the Word of God, and the Word of God rightly explained, rightly divided, lovingly applied, and carefully instructed. A word that has within it the capacity then to make people wise, make people able and mature and strong, 
And so the importance of this series that we began last week and will continue for four weeks is that we want to model and exemplify that here at our church. The overarching topic is the ordinances and the offices. Baptism, communion, the diaconate and elders. But we want to take a look at those four by hovering over them several times, looking at different facets of what God reveals in his word about each. So last week, my main concern was giving you the theological context for each of these, the fulfillment of Christ through each of these, and the application to the church. And today, I want to look at it by addressing, as an elder and as a shepherd, the very real necessity to be a truth speaker in an age of troublemakers. A speaker of truth in an era when people want to take the word and use it for their own advantage. Not unlike those who are of the circumcision party as referenced here in Titus chapter 1. The ones who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Beloved, there is a whole circus of insubordinate, empty talkers who are deceiving Christians every single day. And social media has just made that more pervasive and more instantaneous and in some ways more compelling and more addicting. The very pathways of our brains are being rutted with this insatiable desire to keep clicking through and scrolling through and feeding upon the ever-changing meme theology that has run out through the internet and confusing people. They've abandoned any method of biblical discernment and instead attracted to themselves whomever they believe to be most compelling or occupying the greatest celebrity status. So, why is this important? It's important because in churches like ours, where we're not interested in those things, we have to do it the old-fashioned way, by opening up our Bibles and being instructed, sitting together in a room and listening to somebody teach the Bible and evaluating that teacher and being critical of that teacher, not based on his celebrity status, thank goodness, not based on how clever he is or, or how relevant he is in modern evangelical culture, but by whether or not what he says lines up with what the Bible teaches. And that has been and will be our stock and trade for as long as the Lord and his grace allows it. So with that as an introduction, let's look back at Titus chapter 1. And I want to zero in on one particular verse as we begin this morning. We will be looking at baptism, communion, the diaconate, and eldership. But from the standpoint of what is true and what is an error that needs to be corrected or a misunderstanding that needs to be explained. Verse 9, I will remind you, says this, he, speaking of the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Perhaps I could just pause there for a moment to remind you that elders are not called to be novel. They're not called to be special and unique. They're not called to bring to you 
a teaching that you've never heard before. In fact, if you are listening to teachers that are continually bringing things to you you've never heard before, I recommend you be more scrutinizing of your teachers. Because there's really nothing new. It's not about learning something new. It's about preserving what has been handed down to you and be faithful to that. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't critique it. It doesn't mean you don't grow, mature. It doesn't even mean, and please listen carefully to me when I say this, that you change from time to time. You may even mature in your understanding. But you don't abandon the foundational principles of the gospel that will always be true. And so these men are to hold to what has been taught so that, it's the purpose clause, a hina clause in the original, so that they may be able to, and here's our word, give instruction. One word in the Greek, it means to come alongside, to encourage. It's the same root for the word paraclete, which is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who comes alongside, the encourager. I like that word better than comforter. Comforter makes me think of being at my grandparents' house. Like a comforter is something that they throw on the bed when it's cold on the win- in the winter, you know? It's like cozy. We're not really, that, that's not really our job. We're not supposed to be making you feel cozy. If you feel cozy around us, all the better. But that's not really the goal. It's to challenge, to call out, to call alongside, to, to exhort so that... We can do this with sound doctrine. The word doctrine there, where we get didactic from in English, the teaching, and the teaching is to be sound. Very interesting word. It means healthy. It's the word we get hygienic from. With clean doctrine, pure, hygienic, useful, healthy doctrine. And also to rebuke which means to expose or to convict those who contradict it, those who speak against anti-lego. They speak out in opposition to this truth. That is our responsibility. And so today, with that as my responsibility and my objective and my calling, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38. And we're going to start by looking at the topic of baptism. Acts chapter 2. Why do I go to the book of Acts? Didn't we spend time last week showing you that baptism is really all throughout the scriptures? The answer is yes, but I'm looking specifically at the word baptizo to be immersed, and I find that it is used consistently in the book of Acts after people have come to faith in Christ and He has resurrected and ascended. It is also the time that it would apply most directly to the church. It is also applying to Gentiles. And it is also used 21 times in 19 verses, consistently translated that way across all of the translations you might use. And as we're going to find out today, translations are interpretations. Just write that down. Translations are interpretations. And your translation is somebody's best effort at interpreting the original text. And sometimes that means that you can be led in a very different direction depending on what they land on. And that's only fair to say, and that's why we are so careful in being rigorous about our understanding of the original language that we can present that and attempt to build as compelling a case as we can for why we believe what we believe. 
But if you go back here into Acts 2, beginning in verse 38, we see a very concise statement by Peter. He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. You can end there. It's a rather successful evangelistic gathering, wasn't it? 3,000 souls added to the church that day. Does that mean that they all went to the same church building? No, because there was no church building. Uh, They were gathered in whatever square could hold them. They were gathered on the Temple Mount. They were gathered in Solomon's porch. Uh, They were gathered at rented facilities like Paul used to do in the courts of Tyrannus. And so they would gather the people together and Peter preached an evangelistic sermon as a Jewish man to a bunch of Jewish people who were there for Passover. And 3,000 of them believed that the Messiah that had been killed just days earlier was exactly the one whom the prophet said would come. And so despite his death, they repented and they believed and they were baptized and they were added to the universal church. But in that very statement, there are certain challenges that arise. For example, when Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, does that mean that you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven? a common teaching in some denominations. There are some that would teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. And if you're not baptized, you're not really saved. Well, that is not true. And as we'll come to see today, the only bearing on your condition before the Lord is your belief. If if you take nothing else away from this point, take that away. It is your belief. It is your faith that saves you. But it does also raise a good question about when one is to be baptized. And I want to address that this morning because many of you have wrestled with that. Many many of you have asked the question, well, how long do I wait after believing the gospel to be baptized? Is there a certain age? Is it kind of like a Christian bar mitzvah where like I have to be 13 to get baptized? Is there an age of accountability? where we can draw the line and say, well, now you're able to be baptized. We want to address that today by looking at baptism in the book of Acts. And there are two kinds of baptism going on in the book of Acts. The first kind of baptism was a baptism of groups. And it was usually a baptism of groups of Gentiles. And it usually resulted in this manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down upon them. And the purpose was to show that these Gentiles were just as much a part of the kingdom of God as the Jews. They were baptized into water, immersed into water, and there was this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which made all of the Jews who were traveling with people like Peter and Paul realize that the gospel really was for everybody. But there were also baptisms of individuals. And I want to take a look at those in particular because they're instructive. So if you have your Bibles with you. You might want to turn and look at some of these. We're going to look at three. The baptism and conversion of Lydia, the conversion of the jailer, 
and the conversion of Crispus. Lydia, the jailer, and Crispus. So turn over in Acts to Acts chapter 16. We've now sort of jumped over the ministry of Peter and we're into the ministry of Paul. Paul, by this point, has been converted and baptized himself. And we see this in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia was gathering by the water with a number of other women because according to Jewish tradition, you couldn't start a synagogue without 10 households. So there weren't enough Jews in that city to actually start a synagogue. And so what you did on the Sabbath day was you gathered together by the water. And evidently it was similar there as it was in places like China where I've been and others where the work of the gospel seems to be most active in the hearts of women. And these women were gathered, the men were not interested, and they would worship God as God-fearers, a worshiper of God. Uh, This was a unbeliever, a Gentile, someone yet to understand the gospel, but whose heart was turned toward God. And so when Paul came, he merely explained the connection between all the Old Testament prophecies and the reality of Christ, and her heart was opened, the Bible says, in a beautiful way, and she believed. The way you know she was a believer is that she was baptized, her and her household. The word household here, oikos, is a word that appears in some of the translations that way. In fact, it's a word that meant Uh, those who were under your care. I think that as a merchant, as a seller of purple, she may have been a woman with significant resources. She was a businesswoman, and she had employees, she had servants, she had a staff. Uh, There were people that worked for her. We don't have any indication that she had a husband. She may have, but he's not in the picture. It's irrelevant. Her household, the people that she was caring for and the patron over, they also were baptized. They also believed. Now, it's important to understand another person, and that's the jailer. So look over at Acts 16, because it's one back-to-back. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword because he was going to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, 
you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Once again, his entire household, those who he was over, were able to be baptized because they believed. One more example, chapter 18. This is Crispus. A ruler of the synagogue, verse 8, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. It's very interesting to me that in each of these accounts, there's a very direct connection between the believing and the baptizing. There's a very direct connection between the believing and the baptizing. He does not say that you will be saved by going and baptizing your whole household, whether they believe or not. This is a common way of backing up the notion that infants should be baptized. And in fact, the most predominant set of verses used to defend the idea that babies should be baptized is that the evidence in the New Testament was that whole households were baptized. Now, in defense to our brethren who practice this, it is not worth dividing over. I think it is worth choosing a different church over, but it is not worth dividing over. We are brethren in our belief in the gospel. However, I believe on this point they are wrong. And the reason is that these particular texts that are often used to defend the idea of baptizing infants within the household are not linked predominantly to baptism but to belief. They are saved. The baptism follows the saving. The saving is part of the believing. The believing is the issue. And so everybody in the household that was baptized would have to be somebody who believed. The only way to understand this correctly is to say that each one of those people in the household who were baptized gave the same evidence of belief that people like Lydia and the jailer and Crispus showed. There is nothing else that is required. So, what do we need to correct? Well, we need to correct the assumption, I believe, that there is therefore some long list of duties that a person must perform in order to be baptized. There is one prerequisite for baptism, and that is belief. Now, this will raise some questions. And I intend to raise them on your behalf and answer them to the best of my ability. The first question that often comes up is, okay, well then, how old should a person be before they are baptized? My answer is that there is no particular age. I say that because there is no particular age given in Scripture. What do we say was the prerequisite for baptism? Belief. 
So the follow-up question would be, oh, well then as long as somebody professes faith, they should be baptized. My answer to that is not necessarily. Because there is a certain amount of evaluation that is done when one receives a person into the waters of baptism based on their profession of faith. Namely, that they truly understand. I mean, this is something that we're very concerned about because we don't want people to think that they are born again when they are not. However, we also do not want to withhold baptism from somebody because they think that we are continually challenging their profession. You don't want to raise children who say they believe the gospel and then constantly tell them you're not sure. I don't know that you really do. I would recommend that as parents, you are continually receiving from your children input as to their understanding of the gospel, give them the benefit of the doubt that they believe the gospel, nurture and cultivate that faith, ask them good questions, disciple them to where you can tell for sure that this is something that they actually understand and believe, and if challenged, they would be willing to sacrifice for. Now, is that something that you can do with a three-year-old? Likely not. Can you make a three-year-old pray a prayer? Sure. Can you make a three-year-old repeat something after you? Absolutely. And you know what? The very next day, you could convert them to Islam because they trust you. They'll do whatever you tell them. You will be discerning enough to know when that faith seems real. Not because they've jumped through enough hoops that you've created, but because you can just tell in your own soul that that person genuinely believes, at which point you do bring some others in to affirm that because ultimately it is this local body that will affirm them in their testimony. It was the local body that will affirm them in their baptism. Because remember, a testimony is not all about you and how you were changed. It is about Christ and what he has done. And when you can articulate that clearly enough that you can show others who have made that same profession of faith and are mature, that you understand it, then there will be such a warm welcoming of you into this fellowship regardless of age that it will answer that question. So, it's not about age. It's about understanding. It's about maturity. It is not about jumping through hoops that we have created. It is about simply taking that profession of faith making sure that it is genuine, and then letting them obey. I'm compelled to give you one more example that I think is almost humorous. Go back to Acts chapter 8. Maybe this just shows you what my sense of humor is like. So you might not find this funny. I found it funny. Um... The story of the Ethiopian eunuch, beginning in verse 35. Then Philip, Acts 8, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, the one that he was reading in Isaiah, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now stop there for a moment. 
why would the Ethiopian want to get baptized? Well, the implication is that the Ethiopian eunuch believed and understood the gospel. That's what the writer meant, or else Philip would not have baptized him. However, there was a scribe who was deeply concerned that we misunderstand this. And he didn't want you to think that the Ethiopian eunuch did not pray the prayer, walk the aisle, sign the card. This scribe, who evidently was also part of like a local parachurch organization that had a very formulaic way of making sure that everybody who was baptized had gone through all the proper steps, checked the boxes, you know, had gotten all the proper ribbons, he inserts a verse into Holy Scripture which the ESV has wisely removed, but your translation might include. You might have a verse 37. That wasn't there in the original. But this scribe, who was very concerned, added a little quote from Philip. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He didn't say that. They added that. Why is every translation an interpretation? Because you have to decide what you translate. Now, often the New American Standard, if it's not supposed to be in there, it'll be in italics or they'll be in brackets or there'll be a footnote. Other translations will simply include it. King James, New King James. Or some translations like the ESV simply remove it altogether which makes you wonder where the verse went. You think it's a typo. Or it's fun because if everyone uses an ESV and you're doing like a sword drill in youth ministry, you have them look up that verse. <laughs> Baptism is connected to belief. And it is not condescending to say that belief is to be examined and to be evaluated and to be made sure of. But once it has been, then the desire to obey is a desire that should be fulfilled. The next subject I want to cover is from communion. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've talked about one of the ordinances, which is baptism. The second is communion. And again, I will say to you, if you're not a regular attender of our church, my common practice is to go through a book of the Bible. I am just diverging from that for these four weeks because I just felt compelled to stand up here and share from my heart some thoughts and concerns that I have and hopefully tie them to an understanding from the Bible. So please forgive me if this doesn't seem like enough of a sermon and more of a Bible study, but that's necessary from time to time. I'd like you to look down at a section that's... Um, often, I believe, misunderstood and misapplied. And just to give some context here, let's go to verse 27 of chapter 11. Now, verse 27 has a therefore in it. Because Paul is judging and rebuking the Corinthians. He is rebuking them because they had a practice that was utterly unbiblical, and that is when they gathered together for the love feast, which was the time when the church would gather, likely on Sunday, the Lord's Day, likely later toward the evening, it was a feast, a love feast. 
It was a potluck of sorts. You thought that was like a Baptist thing, but no. It was long before them. And they would bring food. And if you were rich, you brought a lot because you could. And you brought the wine because the wine was a necessary part of the meal. That was how you celebrated. That was what made it a feast. And because you had resources, you would bring more than the average person. And the wealthy Corinthians, of which there were many, by the way, because Corinth was a world city, they would gather together and you had somebody there who would arrive with all their food and their servants and their wine, and they'd begin eating right away. Why? Because the poor people had to work. Everybody worked in those days, six days a week, Sunday through Friday, for 12 hours sun up until sundown, usually six until six. And so they were still working. They were poor. It was the first day of the week. It was not a day off like it would be maybe for some of us. And so they arrived later. And by the time they did, all the rich people were full and drunk. And this was supposed to be a feast that celebrated the unity of the body of Christ. Paul says, this is atrocious and I am not going to commend you for it. He says in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They are despising the church of God, the body of Christ, and they are humiliating poor people. Just consider this for a moment. Just pause for a moment. Rein in your thoughts wherever they are at the moment. Bring them back. And imagine what it would be like if our church service began with a common meal over in the gym And those of you who didn't have very much left church every week feeling humiliated. Humiliated. Just sick in your stomach because these rich people who have everything, they drive the fancy chariots, they've got the fastest horses, they live in the best houses, they have the deepest wells, they have the best and strongest servants. I mean, you should see this guy's donkeys. I mean, they can grind grain like you've never seen before. The most successful businesses, the most fruitful farms, and they get there and they eat and drink and they're laughing and they're tipsy and they're full and they're just celebrating and in you come and there's no food left and and you bring what little scraps that you had because you realized it was a communal meal and they're in the corner not even talking to you and and you eat your little meal and and the little bit of wine that you were able to bring, heavily diluted because you couldn't afford it in full strength and then you more or less crawled out of there afterwards because you really didn't feel like you were part of it anyway and they didn't think much of you and humiliation is what clothed you on your way home. That's what Paul is condemning when he says this to the people, for I received from the Lord what happened. What happened? He waited for everybody at the upper room. He served everybody, the ultimate deacon, took off that outer garment, put on that towel. He washed the filthy feet of his disciples. He washed the filthy feet of Judas. He fed them, had the meal provided for, noted that there was no lamb because he would be the lamb. And then he loves till the very end the ones who within hours would to a man reject him, some of whom vocally despising their association with him. 
He preserved unity at all costs. And therefore, in verse 27, therefore, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of, the word profaning is not in the original text, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You examine yourself. What do you examine yourself for? You examine yourself for whether or not you are eating the bread and drinking the cup a special time during that meal where you remember the Lord's death if you are doing that in a worthy manner. For, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now the question is, what does the word body mean? In a context where the assembled church is being humiliated because people are thoughtlessly eating and drinking, and in a context where the bread and the cup are so clearly identified when referencing the Lord or the upper room Passover, my conclusion is that the body here is the body of Christ. You have to discern or think about the church, the body of Christ. If you don't think about the rest of the church, Paul says, if this is not as important to you as unity, then you are doing it wrong. That is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Do you see how significant that is? It's not because you came to communion and you had some unconfessed sin. As I said last week, the problem is that communion in some churches has been turned into this funeral rite where people think that that's their monthly opportunity to get right with God again. That examining yourself means that you have to search your heart for some unconfessed of sin and make sure you get that right because if you don't, then you take that little wafer and little bit of grape juice and you might get sick and die in the parking lot. Now listen, I lived in terror of communion when I was young because that's just the kind of tone that was coming from the church that I attended. And brothers and sisters, I wish to correct that teaching if that is what you've brought in to this assembly today. What Paul is saying here, I believe, is that the body is the body of Christ and you must consider that. And I see that in the so then and so that conclusions. There are those who were now ill and have died because that's how seriously God takes unity in the church. That's how seriously God takes it when rich people humiliate poor people. I'd be negligent, I'd be guilty of pastoral malpractice if I did not import into our understanding in our 21st century context the importance of living out a biblical mandate in loving everybody and treating them equally within this body, no matter what your status is financially. I'll resist the urge to go on and on. That's for another time. And I think that time's coming soon because it's really, really important that in our day and age we understand that. But for this morning, suffice it to say that that's his argument Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, 
meaning if we evaluated our own situation, discerned, same word, if we discerned ourselves, if we discerned ourselves in this church, if we discerned everybody rightly, then we wouldn't be judged. Does God discipline believers, yes or no? Yes. Does God condemn believers, yes or no? No. There's no condemnation, but there is discipline. That's what Hebrews tells us. There's discipline. Does he even kill believers? Yes. He literally does. Dead. Like flatline. In the refrigerated shelf. In the morgue. Kind of dead. Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them? There's no indication they weren't believers. They were just liars. So, he says, when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that, purpose clause, we may not be condemned along with the world. He disciplines us as our Heavenly Father so that it's proof he will not condemn us to hell. If you've ever been under the discipline of God and you know it, be thankful that it is an indication that you will never be sent to hell. God's discipline in your life is an example that you're his child and he does not condemn his children. So then, my brothers, when you come together, here's the point. The context is everything in this. It's not complicated. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, what do I do? How do I avoid getting judged? How do I avoid getting disciplined? How do I discern the body correctly? Here's how you do it. You wait for one another. You wait. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. So then wait so that when you come together, you will not be judged. It doesn't say, so then, sit in the parking lot and think about your sin and come in with a heavy heart while we play sad music and imagine that somehow eating this cracker and drinking this cup is going to make you right with God or improve your standing. If that's what you want to do, you can go down the street to the nearest Roman Catholic church and they will help you with that. I got a call today our office manager was out. I got a call this week. I went around. I answered it. The gentleman asked me, how long are your masses? And, and I just thought, you know, how do I keep them on the line? You know what I mean? It's like in the movies where somebody's trying to trace the call. How do I keep them on the line? So I didn't answer. I just hit him with the gospel. I just said the Mass is what the Reformation sought to fix. We don't believe in a Mass. Because there's no forgiveness for sin that can be offered by a priest other than our gracious high priest who has gone back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Amen? It's so good that I was just thinking about Hebrews. This is not a mass or a pseudo-mass. It's a celebration of what God's already done. And I love the fact that Paul, despite the fact that he's got to deal with like 
sexual sin in the church and crazy relationships and stuff going on with men and women and tongues and like all kinds of craziness. He just says it like this is the most important thing for him. Make sure that when you get together and you have communion, you do it right because people are literally dying in your church. Like that's a top priority. God isn't killing people because of incest and because of sexual immorality and because of using your gifts inappropriately and because of men and women roles in the church. Nobody was dying because of that. They were dying because of people were rejecting the unity of the body of Christ as seen in that love feast and celebrated in communion. That's why he ends this section with this lovely footnote. It's just so great. He just says, about the other things I will give direction when I come. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I love that. About the other stuff, eh, we'll cover it when I get there. Not that important. I'll send you a note. Gave you some instruction. We'll talk about it when I arrive. What's most important then is that when we gather, we understand that this is a time where we see our merciful high priest, high and lifted up, living to make intercession for us, having ascended in the same corporeal bodily substance that he was when he revealed himself to men like Thomas and said, come and touch me. It's that same body retained in glory that intercedes for us. It was representative of what happened in Leviticus 16 when the priest would come out once a year before the people and there would be two goats and he would lay his hand on one and it would be sent off into the wilderness, the scapegoat, and the other before the people he would take and he would slit its throat and the blood would come spurting out of it and he would take that blood in a basin and he would turn his back to the people and they had to trust him that he was going to be in right standing before God and that he would bring that blood in the basin to the mercy seat and sprinkle it on their behalf because they weren't able to see. They weren't allowed to get in there. They stayed several checkpoints behind. And if you read the narrative, you'll know that he had to offer a sacrifice for himself first. And then once he was clean in the eyes of God, he could offer the sacrifice on behalf of the others. And then if you see later on in the testimony he would come out and there would be the trumpet blast and they would celebrate the fact that he has come back now, returned, having paid for the sins of the people. It's all a picture of Christ because Hebrews says Christ died and sacrificed himself and spilled his own blood. A spotless lamb laid down that life, gave it up so that he could impute his active and passive righteousness to us and our sin could be imputed to him. And he also was the priest who took the blood in to the very mercy seat of God. Everything that Moses was told to do, we are told, was a reflection of what is in heaven. It's a, it's a shadow, a little model. But in the real case, he brought that up bodily when he rose from the dead, proving that the sacrifice was sufficient and now lives to make intercession for us. And he will one day also come back from the throne room and the trumpet will blast and he will come out to us victorious. Amen? That's the second coming. Like that's what we're looking forward to. Risen, victorious, bodily, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, returning in victory.
That's tied to communion somehow. Though I can't remember how I was tying that together. But, amen and amen. <laughs> Two more points. Let's briefly talk about deacons. Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, yeah, I told you the guy called me about the Mass. That's what it was. Yeah. That's why I'm not the receptionist. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, I just want to remind you of something. We all know the deacon qualifications described a little bit last week about why I believe exegetically that to apply to both men and women being able to hold that office. We'll address that issue again in a moment, but I wanted to say something else first. I want you to see that those who serve as deacons, verse 13, who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, deacons serve, but that doesn't mean that deacons are ignorant of biblical truth. So they, they must know the faith as well. A deacon who serves in that capacity must be a person who understands the faith, who is capable and confident in the faith. And I wish to only do that as a way of elevating the significance of the role of deacon, meaning that these are biblically literate disciplers. Um, they're engaged in, in ministry that is not just service to the church, primarily service to the church, primarily these roles of taking care of the administration so the elders can focus on, on the word and prayer, the ministry of the word and prayer, the serving of the word and prayer. They serve the other things so that the elders can serve their things. That, that's true, and I'm not, I'm not taking that away. But because they're serving in other ways doesn't mean that they're not able also from time to time in a certain context serve as a Bible study leader, serve as a fellowship group leader, a discipler, their, their position is not unspiritual. However, it is lacking spiritual authority. And I want to make that distinction. Elders are said that they must be able to teach, and the deacons are not told that. Even if a deacon has the gift of teaching, they may deploy that somewhere else, but the elders are told to be able to teach. Able to teach means able to teach God's word, I believe, in the assembled gathering. And that limitation of the elder role of teacher is connected with that person's authority. The authority, the teaching, is an authority that is in the word. The word has the authority, not the elder. Now, yes, there is some delegated authority by the congregation to the elders to serve in that regard. And that, by the way, is biblical and is appropriate. But I want to back up and clarify some things. So let's take this sort of foggy mirror and just make it clear. I'm just going to make some statements. I hope they're helpful. Number one, the authority that an elder has is not in himself, and it is certainly not what one elder holds over and above the other elders. 
So, so if somebody says, well, the Bible says we are to obey our leaders, the answer is yes. But one leader in the church, one elder, is not able to lord over you without you having any ability to go to the other elders for help or ultimately to the congregation who put that elder into his particular role. So elders themselves, in and of themselves, individually, are not given blanket authority to simply lord over you and to tell you what to do and be your spiritual father. You're given a plurality of elders who should be serving you. And the authority that they have is very real. But it is tied to Scripture, not tied to their opinion. Secondly, the authority that they have is the authority to teach the Word of God, to apply the Word of God. That means that if you have an elder who is not applying the Word of God and teaching, he's not functioning as an elder. And if you have an elder who is functioning but he's not using the Word of God, he's not functioning as an elder. That's his role. And only in that role does he have authority. Only when he says, thus says the Lord, are you required to obey. You're obeying the Lord. Because who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. And then the church, I believe, at least in my ecclesiology, welcomes people into the membership of the church and removes them from the church and appoints the elders and affirms the deacons. So the reason why we share that role together and as elders are responsible ultimately to you and to the Lord. So when it comes to deacons, you might say, how does that connect? Well, it connects this way. The deacons are not told to have that authority. The authority that they would, would wield, if any at all, would be the responsibility that they are given and the authority that comes with it. There certainly is some degree of authority that if a person tells you to do something, you should do it. If I were to walk down into the nursery between services and the nursery worker said to me, hey, don't walk through here, I'm not going to say, well, I'm an elder. You're not going to tell me not to do anything. Who gave you that authority? I'll show you. I'll show you. I'll walk right through. I'll go swing in the swing if I want to. So I'm an elder. I've got authority. You haven't read the Bible? How dare you? No. I'm going to say, yes, ma'am. Is that, is that authority? They have a responsibility, and with it comes a certain leadership. Okay. But that's not the kind of authority we're talking about here in the, in, in the Bible in the spiritual sense. Spiritual authority rests then with the elders. And I think this answers the question that often comes up in the concern over whether or not women can occupy the role of deacon because some people think that that means authority and authority can only be held by men. And I think the real answer to that question is that the authority that men hold has nothing to do with them being men. It has to do with them being elders. The authority is connected to the Bible. The authority is connected to the scriptures. And so the reason why the elders have the authority is because they're preaching the word of God and those elders, according to God's plan, are instructed to be men. That's, that's not, a, it's not condescending to women. That, that's just clear in scripture. It's unbiblical for a woman to be an elder. It's unbiblical for a woman to wield the authority of God's word even under the authority of the elders. I believe that 
Beth Moore is wrong and that she can't preach and say, well, I'm doing it under the authority of the elders and anyone else for that matter who does it. The authority comes from God's word. And so because the diaconate doesn't have that same authority, throughout church history, women have served as deacons, and I'll give you some examples. This comes from a great little book that was just put out by Matt Smethurst called Deacons. And in it, he traces through church history several examples going all the way back to the 100s where Pliny the Younger, Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, Olympias, the Apostolic Constitutions of 380 AD, John Chrysostom, Jerome, all make references specifically to women deacons. In fact, even John Calvin said this, Deaconesses were appointed not to soothe God by chantings or unintelligible murmurs and spend the rest of their time in idleness, but to perform a public ministry of the church towards the poor and to labor with all zeal and diligence in offices of charity. That is what both men and women did, by the way, in the office of deacon. And I could read all of these to you, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to end with this one. Charles Spurgeon who, you know if Charles Spurgeon said it, then we're all supposed to believe it, right? He said this, deaconesses, an office that most certainly was recognized in the apostolic churches, and that it would be a great mercy if God gave us the privilege of having many sons who are all preachers of the gospel and many daughters who were all eminent in the church as teachers, deaconesses, missionaries, and the like, unquote. Preachers of the word, shepherds and elders, no. But teachers, of course. May God raise up many more women teachers with the gift of teaching and apply it appropriately within the life of the church. One more on elders and then we'll conclude. For years, this has been a challenge for me because I've always wrestled with the interpretation in my Bible that would suggest that elders' children have to be believers. So turn to First Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, Titus chapter 1 again. We began there and we'll end there. Other translations, including the original English translations, Tyndale in 1526, Cloverdale in 15, Coverdale in 1535, and the Geneva Bible in 1587, all translated the word pista in Titus 1.6 as faithful. In fact, of all the other uses of the word in the New Testament, it is almost always rendered faithful. And I bring this up because I know that for many of us, as we read our English Bibles, we may be led to believe that somehow an elder is not qualified for the office if his children are not believers. However, if you translate this faithful, which I think is the correct translation, it would make more sense. If anyone is above reproach, namely the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, and his children are faithful, how is that? By not being open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
God doesn't define faith in terms of a believer and then qualify it with a whole bunch of external performance, especially a child. What he's talking about here is just the elder's ability to manage his household. Is his household under control? Is he loyal and faithful to his wife, a one-woman man? And are his children obedient, compliant, submissive? Why? Because if an elder's children were known for their debauchery or their insubordination, they would disqualify him, not simply because of their debauchery and insubordination, but God doesn't tell us to control our children's behavior. We can't. But it would show that there is a lack of oversight and leadership in his home. And therefore, the people would have a difficult time respecting him. Now, much more could be said about that. I could drag us through a whole study of this, but I've noticed that even the most recent translations, including a revision of the NASB, which has come out recently, has adopted the translation faithful, and I think that is a faithful translation. This is the part of the sermon where, in seminary, we're told to have a conclusion that really pulls it all together and just ends with a high note. But I didn't have time for that this week, so we're going to close with a word of prayer. And then I'm going to invite our team from Paraguay to come up and to give us an announcement, an update. And I ask again in advance forgiveness of those of you who have been serving in children's ministry for being late again this week. I just ask your forgiveness. But we'll have us wrap up as soon as we can. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together in your word. I trust that what has been said and done today is to your honor and glory, that you would be pleased with us as a church to receive these truths and to apply them um, in a way that keeps us faithful to you. That's, that's our only desire, is to be faithful to you. And may we do that for your glory and honor and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.